Welcome to the podcast series, Withers Talks Art. I'm Diana Warbicki, the global head of the Withers Art Law Group, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast series. In these podcasts, I have the pleasure of asking art-related questions to my Withers colleagues from around the globe. With me today is Kim Almazan from our San Francisco office. Today, we will be discussing an array of California issues that affect the art market. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you that anything discussed in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and we're not providing any legal advice. Kim, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. We have quite a lot of ground to cover. The first very exciting thing is that the San Francisco Bar Association, starting next year in January 2020, will have a new art law committee that you will be chairing. Congratulations, Kim. Thank you. What made you think that now was the right time to start an art law committee in San Francisco? There's a lot of buzz going on right now in the California art market, and I think specifically in San Francisco, you see new galleries popping up all the time. The art fairs are doing really well and getting bigger, especially in San Francisco. Phillips just hired someone to work full-time in the Bay Area. Bonhams is opening up a new showroom in San Francisco. I think that there are a lot of people in San Francisco who are really sophisticated and intelligent, and I think people think that it's time to capture them and get them to be part of this art market. And you had hosted a few events leading up to this, testing out the waters if an art law committee, if it was the right time in San Francisco. Who was the audience? Who's kind of interested in learning more about this space and getting involved on the collector side? We got a really great reception. Obviously, a lot of lawyers attended. There are a lot of people who are practicing in this area who are excited to talk to other practitioners about it. And a lot of people who I think will be potentially collectors in the future were really interested as well. There are a lot of people in the finance industry who are interested, a lot of people in the auction industry who are interested, people who just wanted to be part of the scene and learn more. When you mentioned that there's been a buzz in the San Francisco market when it comes to art issues in the press, we've been hearing quite a bit about SFMOMA deciding to deaccession their Rothko. How was that received? People were very interested in what SFMOMA was going to do with that money, and I think SFMOMA made about $50 million on that Rothko. They sold it through Sotheby's, I believe, and they've already started purchasing new works of art. The intent was to address art historical gaps in the collection and obtain more works of art by women artists and artists of color, and they've started to do that. So they recently purchased some works by Alma Thomas and Norman Lewis, and I think everyone's really excited about the fact that they're trying to embrace these new types of works of art and have a broader collection in general. It's great that they were able to garner that type of excitement because generally what we see is that deaccessioning is not something that the public is very supportive of. It's worked out, it seems like, for SF MoMA, but what about the De Rosa Museum? How are things going over there? The De Rosa Museum is a private museum in Napa, and they recently announced over the summer that they were going to deaccession a large portion of their collection. The reason for that was to stay afloat. It wasn't because they wanted to address gaps in the collection or anything of that nature. And people were actually pretty upset about it. So there was an open letter penned to the museum by dealers and collectors and lots of people in the art world talking about how they really needed to find a good place for these works of art, a new home for it, rather than just selling it. It's sort of the antithesis of the SF MoMA story, it seems. People are not very happy about this deaccessioning. Another topic, Kim, that I wanted us to discuss today was the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
commonly referred to as the ADA. We've seen these ADA lawsuits quite a lot in the art space, but I think first let's generally talk about how you see them in California. California businesses are arguably the most vulnerable in the entire nation when it comes to these ADA lawsuits. For instance, in 2018, there were approximately 10,000 of these lawsuits filed nationwide in federal courts, and almost half of them were in California. California businesses have been dealing with these for a long time, but not with the website accessibility issues. What we've been seeing in New York for the past year is that there have been quite a few ADA claims relating to gallery websites not being fully accessible to hearing or visually impaired persons. Is this something that you think that California galleries will also be facing? We do. We think that this is going to be starting very soon for California galleries for a number of reasons. First, I think ADA plaintiffs are seeing how successful these cases were and are in New York and that reportedly settlements are being paid out fairly quickly. But secondly, and more importantly, there was a U.S. federal court, district court in California, that held that these website accessibility cases cannot go forward in California. That was appealed to the Ninth Circuit. It was reversed. The Ninth Circuit said they could go forward. But then it was appealed again to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case, meaning now the Ninth Circuit has essentially paved the way for these lawsuits to start happening in California. What can people do to be prepared now that we think they're coming down the pike? What should they be thinking about doing? People can start working with consultants. There are people out there who can help you incorporate software into your websites to ensure that these visually and hearing impaired people are able to see and hear what they need to. We also think it's important that galleries or other small businesses make sure that their terms and conditions on their websites are up to date. That's a really important thing to handle little things that I think can easily be taken care of, knowing what's happening. And from the New York side, we've seen it over the past year. It would be good for California galleries to be following what we've been doing over here. Another issue that the two of us have been talking about quite a lot is employment issues. And I know I'm always surprised when we have these conversations about how different the climates are with regard to this issue in New York and California. Because when it comes to New York, I think that we are a bit more favorable to the employer. But in California, from our discussions, it sounds like there is more favorability towards the employee on employment situations. Is that accurate? That is correct. California has long had legislative and public policy addressing this issue specifically and saying that employees receive more protection than employers. And the courts have interpreted that in various ways, but probably the most important is that courts have held that non-solicitation clauses and non-compete clauses are just generally unenforceable in California. When we talk about art galleries, the setup of those businesses, they may have a few employees, but they may also have a number of independent contractors that they're taking on for specific projects as they're getting ready for art fairs, just dealing with highs and lows in terms of their activity. Are independent contractors offered the same protections that employees are offered under California law? Generally speaking, independent contractors are not entitled to the same protections and the same benefits as employees, but that's potentially changing now. What's changing? What's going on that might change that? A new law was just instituted that might make things more difficult for employers in the art world. This law essentially says that employers cannot reclassify employees as independent contractors to cut costs, which I think people have been doing in the past. 
I couldn't simply say as an employer in California, I'm running an art gallery, that in my actual document that the person signs who I'm hiring, I'm going to say all over there that's independent contractor, that's not necessarily going to work to get them out of the protection. That's, I think, what this legislation is trying to address, exactly. And so what the courts will look at is whether this person, who is an independent contractor or perhaps an employee, is performing work that's part of the usual course of business. If what they're doing is part of the course of business, then they really should be an employee. If they're doing something that's irrelevant to the business, then that person can be an independent contractor. In the context of the art market, what would be an example of something that was in the course of normal, ordinary business? One thing that I've heard a lot of people talking about is if you're a gallery and you're putting up your new show and you have someone come in to hang the pieces on the wall, that is sort of the sum and substance of what you're doing as a gallery. You're showing works of art, but that's not a person that probably needs to be an employee and receive benefits from you, especially if you're a small gallery and you have a small budget. These are the types of concerns people in the art market have. Kim, this has been a great update on issues that are happening in California that affect the art market. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure discussing this art law topic with you. And to all of our listeners out there, thanks for listening. And if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to reach out.